Welcome to the United Church Podcast. We're a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love and walking in the ways of Jesus. We're striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you're encouraged and challenged by this week's homily. May the peace of Christ be with you. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. To be honest, these words have been and still are confusing and puzzling to me. In these words, Jesus seems to be acknowledging or possibly foretelling he will die at the hands of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees. And it sounds like Jesus is saying that that's a good thing. And not only that, he seems to be communicating that to be a servant of God, you must hate this life and the life that we have in this world and be willing to die to bear much fruit for God. Then Jesus goes on to say that he is troubled by this, but that he wouldn't ask God to save him from this fate because it's his purpose to be lifted up through death on a cross to draw God's people to him. Again, what do we do with these words? How do we make sense of them? I know for me, growing up in, a, in the context of white evangelical church, passages like this were used as a call to die to the things of this world, to hate this world, to hate myself, to sacrifice myself so that God can maybe glorified by my service to him. Rarely was this done explicitly, but it was often implied. The gospel I heard was one where Jesus willingly gave his life to pay the debt up for my sin and that I, as a sinful servant of God, am to emulate God in dying to this world and losing my life so that others may have life. After all, don't owe it to God who died for me to do the same for others. Within this version of the gospel, there is a constant invitation to followers of Jesus, especially women and people of color, to become willing sacrifices and allow others to use them, strip them of their dignity, to be servant, a servant of a crucified God. That God will be glorified in their death to this life, the cutting off of their desires and needs and love of this life and their continual sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom. When I read this passage, I have a visceral reaction. My body tenses up. I stop breathing. I brace for the abuse and violence that has come against me as a woman, and even more so the abuse and violence experienced by generations of people of color in the name of a crucified Jesus where the words of this passage have been weaponized and used to call followers of Jesus to relinquish their dignity, their value, their life, to honor and glorify God. For instance, when people of color share their experience of racism and white supremacy in the church, and white Christians respond with a call for unity and grace to be extended, claiming that the person of color is just causing division, this is an extension of this version of the gospel. 
It is demanding that a person of color sacrifice their own dignity, their own value and experience for the sake of a false unity in the church so that God can be glorified. But in reality, it is a it is white supremacy demanding to a false sense of security and safety at the expense of the person of color. Not only that, but passages like this have been interpreted in such a way that contribute to the white Christian nationalism and white supremacy that permeates our culture and leads to the violence and hate we've seen highlighted this week against Asian and Asian American women in our country, where a white man feels the need to eliminate temptation by killing women he has sexualized and dehumanized and claim it as a service to others. In addition, these interpretations have justified a call to LGBTQ plus individuals to disown, cut off, and hate aspects of themselves in order to serve God through celibacy, um, possibly, and instead of experiencing with a, intimacy with a partner, even just love of who they are. And the litany of abuses that stem from this interpretation of the gospel go on and on and on and on. So when I came to this passage and come to it today even, it is with suspicion. I come to it with an awareness of trauma and abuse. I come to it with questions and confusion and pain. And I wonder, what is Jesus actually saying? If Jesus' message aligns with the white dominant evangelical Christian nationalism and white supremacy embedded in the gospel that I grew up with, I, quite frankly, am not interested in following this Jesus. But I, as I sat with this passage, I had a growing sense that this message I grew up with is a twisted and distorted understanding of Jesus' words here. I don't believe that Jesus is inviting us to perpetuate death and violence, abuse and trauma. In fact, I think it's the opposite of what we're invited to as followers of Jesus. That in this moment, Jesus was responding to the short-sighted, fear-driven, security-seeking approach to life held by the Pharisees and others, and offering a way out of the system of oppression. Jesus was offering an alternative to fear, an alternative to violence, an alternative to the oppressive use of power, and Jesus' invitation to a life that does not require us to use violence and maintain power. To really understand what Jesus is saying here, it's important to understand the context in which Jesus says these words. Prior to this interaction, Jesus raised a man called Lazarus from the dead, and naturally, people were intrigued and sought Jesus out. The religious rulers saw how people were flocking to Jesus and also Lazarus after this incident, and they feared that people would believe in Jesus and would it would disrupt the so-called peace. They feared that the Romans would come and destroy their holy place and their nation, and with that, they would lose position and power and the tentative place as leaders and as a people in a colonized society. It might just disappear. For them, the future and the purity of the nation of Israel was at stake. You see, the Roman Empire had given the Pharisees power over the nation of Israel as long as they kept the peace and made sure that people fell in line with what served the empire. Jesus' actions were disrupting this, and they feared losing control and their ability to maintain and protect their way of life, their culture, their nation, their people. 
something had to be done. So they decided it would be better that one or two men causing the disruption should die for all so that the status quo could be maintained and their culture preserved. Even the high priest prophesied that Jesus would die on behalf of the nation to gather the dispersed children of God. In essence, the people wanted Jesus to die out of fear of colonial power, fear of losing their place of worship, their way of life, their nation, their security, and a system. They wanted to eliminate the person they felt could threaten their fragile position in society. Out of fear and self-preservation, they determined it would be better to murder and kill Jesus and possibly Lazarus in order to return to a feeling of security, power, equilibrium, peace, and ensure their survival. It was in this context that Jesus spoke these words. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is exposing the vision the Pharisees present as a pseudo-kingdom. He's highlighting that their approach to life, their deal with the Roman Empire, and their effort to maintain the purity and culture of Israel, to save the nation by killing him, will lead to death. When Jesus says whoever loves his life loses it, he's referring to the life as imagined and lived out by the Pharisees. They were who were so focused on maintaining the power and purity of the nation of Israel that they lost sight of God's love for all of God's children, including those outside of the nation of Israel. To follow down the path of Pharisees, to live in fear and cling to security and power is missing the point, is what Jesus is saying. In contrast, those who, go, who let go of and embrace the kingdom of God, those are the ones who truly live a life that is fruitful, abundant, beyond what is envisioned by the Pharisees. Jesus' kingdom vision goes beyond a temporary sense of security for the nation of Israel to a restoration of relationship between God and all of God's children. And just like the seed dying and producing a multitude of fruit, Jesus died and was resurrected, showing the power of God to overcome oppression. Karen Baker Fletcher, a womanist theologian, talks about the resurrection as the power of God to overcome oppression. Here, Jesus is talking about the nature of his death, that, but he's also highlighting the fruitfulness of his resurrection, that he will overcome the oppression of the Pharisees and the Roman Empire, that the powers of this world will be cast out, that is what Jesus invites us to join in, the, in his words, a life eternal, one that is beyond the short-sighted vision that the Pharisees have, had planned, and one that includes not just the Jewish nation, but all of God's children being drawn into God. Later, Jesus reassures them that death does not win, that the systems and rulers of this world will be cast out, the Pharisees are trying to find security through these systems, and Jesus is saying that ultimately the security they are looking for does not exist in that system, but it is in the way of the kingdom where relationship with God will be restored and the evil and oppression of this world will be cast out. I believe we have a similar pseudo-kingdom now that mirrors the Pharisees in this passage. The forces of Christian nationalism and white supremacy embrace a similar fear as the Pharisees. They fear the loss of power and security and desire to preserve and maintain the white 
culture of Western civilization that feels like it is slipping through their fingers. They feel threatened by the government that doesn't promise to protect them. They feel threatened by the presence of non-white white bodies, of women, of the LGBTQ, LGBTQ plus population. They feel like their way of life is at stake, just like the Pharisees, and are willing to use violence against others to protect the America they know and love. But this vision and attempt to preserve life is a mirage. What Jesus is saying is that is not true life. From this passage, I believe Jesus' invitation to us living in the context of Christian nationalism and white supremacy is to let go of and denounce this pseudo-kingdom because it already has and will continue to lead to death. Physical death, death of the soul, psychological death, and death to our personhood. Jesus is saying, you have narrowed down your understanding of the kingdom to protecting a few, and you are missing out on the vast, expansive, eternal vision of life in God's kingdom, where a resurrected Jesus draws all near to him. He calls us to follow him, to look at the ways he engaged the world in his life, and to do likewise. Where in just before this passage, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, dead, and before that, even before that, he wept with his friends who had lost a loved one. Where Jesus was constantly feeding the hungry, healing the sick, and embracing the outcast. This passage is not a call to continually sacrifice ourselves and die as servants of God, but to continually be raised from and resurrected from our own graves, to let go of our short-sighted ways of living in fear that lead to death and live into a much bigger, broader vision of life that exceeds and overcomes the oppressive systems of this world. In order to lean into this fuller understanding of life, we need to recognize, lament, mourn, and let go of the ways we are tied to the systems of oppression in our society. The invitation in this passage is to hate the ways of death that masquerade as life. As we were so painfully reminded this week through the murder of six Asian women and two others in Georgia as just one example, Christian nationalism and white supremacy has and will continue to lead to violence and death. It has a hold on our nation that is not and will not be easily broken. Let us lament the harm of Christian nationalism and white supremacy that has led to violence in our society. But that cannot be the end of our work. We must grapple with and put to death the ways that white supremacy has seeped into our bones, into our imaginations, into our ways of being in this world. We must find ways to give up our, the sense of security and power that it offers at the expense of our own lives and the lives of others. I believe this is what Jesus means when he says to serve and honor the Father God. We must hate the version of life this world offers us and instead embrace the way of the kingdom of God that offers a life unimaginable when we focus on the short-sighted strategies of self-preservation like that of the Pharisees. Jesus is begging and pleading with us to, be, to untangle ourselves from the ways we have missed the point and gotten caught up in the belief that the systems of this world will offer true life. And Jesus is inviting us to a life of connection with God, with one another, 
a life that does not require us to commit violence against others to maintain a tenuous sense of power and security. Because in Jesus's reality that he's inviting us to, we are loved and brought close to God because we are part of God's kingdom where we have honor and dignity and value and we see others in the same way. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us at 1316 Third Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.